does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Still here in the drivehubler.com studio, I'm James Boyd alongside Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook, cooking it up here. You like that? Doing what we can. I'll do like that. It's good I mean, stuff. You're, you're throwing puns uh, out there. I'm, I got to try. I'm glad you're joining the party. It's fun. There you go. It is or always punny. fun. Oh my goodness. All right. We can stop right there. Encouragement only goes so far. <laughs> this is so bad. At some point, you got to draw a line in the sand. So, oh my goodness. Now we're going to pivot away from all of those things, goodness gracious, and get back to our topic, the Pacers and what they've been doing, what they've been up to. We have Zion Brown covers the Pacers and other things at Indy Star. You know, Zion, how you doing? I'm good, good. Thank you guys for having me. How are you guys? Doing good. good. Zion, so I know before we get into free agency moves, I want to talk to you about Summer League. My love for NBA basketball is never higher, and I'm not lying, than Summer League because when you're out there in Vegas, it is such a great time. Now, I know you're not there. We got uh, your buddy Dustin out there instead. I'll make sure to talk to Andy Starr and get you out there next summer and pull some strings over there. <laughs> but um, what, is, what was it like just – then preparing for summer league and just seeing maybe what Benedict Matherin is focusing on, Jairus Walker and others. Yeah, they've been practicing all week, and those two players you named, along with Andrew Nimhart and Isaiah Jackson, those those guys are like the young core that this Pacers team is trying to help develop. Obviously, Tyrese Halliburton leads that, but he's well beyond summer league level at this point. So yeah, I think he's a, a little too high paid right now. I don't know if you put bit, any. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> But yeah, like I said, those are the guys that are trying to develop a real chemistry with each other. You could tell that that was a real focus, talking to all those guys this weekend. And Matherin's just trying to expand his game, get a better handle in his game. And that's something that he wants to go in there. He probably won't play too many games, but he wants to go in there and, and prove that he's made some improvements since the end of the regular season. Who has the most to gain or the biggest area to improve over the course of Summer League with both opportunities that will be handed to them and also just the platform that's in front of them, Zion? To me, I think it is, uh, it's actually, I'd say, Oscar Shibway, who was the undrafted rookie out of Kentucky. I wrote about him, and to me, I think he's interesting because he's just not what the NBA big is right now. Obviously, he's not a guy that's going to spread the floor much, but he is a worker. He goes out and gets rebounds, and anybody that watched the Pacers last year knew rebounding was a big issue. Miles Turner can do a lot of things. Rebounding as a center is not something he's necessarily great at. So if you look at somebody like Oscar Shibway, Maybe he can. He signed to a deal the other day. Maybe he can sneak a roster spot onto the team and have an impact. So he's somebody I'm looking forward to in these four or five summer league games that he'll play in to see if he belongs on the NBA floor. Zion, you talk about belonging on the NBA floor. A guy like Isaiah Jackson, he's someone where it might feel like, okay, what do we have here? Is there an opportunity for him to continue to grow with this franchise or – is he up against the fire? So how big do you think this summer league is for him? And just, just throughout summer league, training camp, preseason, and obviously the season, how important is this year for a guy like him? Yeah, I absolutely feel like these next few months are big for Isaiah Jackson. When we talked to him, I believe that was on Sunday, he said, you know, the Pacers asked him, you know, he's going into year three now, but the Pacers did ask him if he'd be okay and willing to play in summer league. And obviously – he will be there. He said he's only expected to play two or three games, but he'll be there, and he's someone who, you know, you see the flashes when Isaiah Jackson's on the court in the NBA, but it's never fully together on both ends. It hasn't been yet, but you definitely see the flashes of what Isaiah Jackson can be. He's an, an insane athlete, can uh, get rebounds, but he does need to prove himself long-term. He said he's been working on his jumper even more, so he'll probably be shooting, you know, maybe two or three threes a game in the summer league games he plays, but I do feel like, like you said, he's up against it a little bit. You know, time is ticking to see if he truly belongs with this franchise. Zion Brown with us covers the Pacers for the Indianapolis Star NBA Summer League right around the corner. Pacers announced their official Summer League roster last week. You mentioned potential game restrictions. As you look at this rookie class, we've seen so often the last couple of years, teams be more cautious than ever with the amount of Summer League reps they allow their prized rookies to go after. Maybe they let second-rounders run a little longer than they would somebody like Jairus Walker. But as you look at Jairus Walker and Ben Shepard, how much run do you expect them to get out in Summer League? 
So those two didn't really seem like they were on a restriction that could change. You know, they're probably still having conversations about it up until Saturday when the Pacers' first game is. But from what we heard, it did not seem like either Ben Shepard or Jarris Walker had restrictions on how much they'll play. Now, yes, we, we've seen kind of change that as they go, or maybe one of them tweaks something and they just get shut down immediately. But I could, I would not be surprised if both of those players played the whole way for the Pacers in summer league. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is let's just knock on some wood here in the studio because if there's any minor thing, if there's like a, a hangnail, the guy gets shut down. It's like you're never going to see him again. <laughs> so, just takes one. Exactly. So yeah. if yeah. these guys stay healthy, I would love to see them play and compete and obviously see what unfolds from there. But to kind of pivot away from the youth of the roster and obviously what we expect to see in summer league, what was your reaction to seeing – you know, on one hand, Tyrese Halliburton got the bag with the Pacers, and then, you know, a couple of days later, I believe, DeMontis Sabonis gets the bag with Sacramento. So, are you still having to fight in your comments or your mentions about who won the trade? Because I think those two guys won it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Those two are the winners. They're both all stars, both had incredible seasons. And, like you said, they both now have the bag. So, I don't know if there's, you know, I think both teams got what they needed because the Kings obviously already had a great guard and De'Aaron Fox, an all-star guard himself. And the Pacers just needed a little bit more. Not that DeMontis Sabonis is super old, but they wanted to change it up because he had been here in Indy for a while. And both teams got what they needed. And both teams, I think, are really happy with where they are as a franchise right now. The Kings were oh so close to defeating the Warriors and, and winning their first playoff series in forever. But even to make it for them was a big deal. And the Pacers now, they, were full, they fully have their direction now in the rebuild. But now with a couple of things they've done now, they could be even closer to making the playoffs than they thought they were. So everybody has their franchise guy. Everybody comes away fairly happy with the result of that trade. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would love to be just somewhere around when the Brinks truck shows up just to get me a little just a little, just a little bag of the big bag, you know, just take my little my little cut off the top for the articles I wrote about. <laughs> sure. But, you know, because obviously I'm the reason they both got paid. Now I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My recent teammates were all very vocal about how they need, you know, their Rolexes. He <laughs> Everything's on him going forward. That's awesome. That's awesome. But maybe not a very serious question, but when you add a guy like Obi Toppin to the mix, you know, obviously Isaiah Jackson can jump out the gym, Benedict Mather can jump out the gym. So, I mean, how many highlight dunks might we see this upcoming season just because of who they have now, I feel like they have so many athletic guys, and I can't forget Miles. Like Miles is supposed to rise a few guys as well. So, is that something I, w- I would assume entices um, the Pacers just because they've? It seems like they've gotten more athletic, more dynamic. Oh, I I feel like this will be one of the more exciting teams in the league. They already play at a high pace, but like you said, adding Obi Toppin to that mix, one of the probably five or six most athletic, most bounciest players in the NBA. This is going to be a phenomenally fun team to watch. You're going to have those moments and transitions, the alley-oops, everything. It is going to be must-see TV a lot of times when the Pacers are playing this year because there's a lot of athleticism on that court. As you measure out what this starting five could look at, I, I want to look strictly at the four for this question, which is, James mentioned it, you've mentioned it too, Zion Brown with us covers the page for the Indy Star. They're going to be faster, quicker. There's going to be levels of athleticism that are, are up for the taking in terms of the highlight plays that James rolled out, our own Andy Garrison had mentioned as well, that the type of transition numbers some of their free agent acquisitions have put up would seem very appetizing to any offense in the NBA. But as you look at the four with Obi Toppin coming in, there's no Julius Randle in front of them, but there is a hungry rookie in Jairus Walker. How do you envision that decision-making and their overall positional battle taking shape once we get closer into Pacers training camp a couple months from now? I think it'll be all about what the team wants to prioritize, whether that's offense or defense, because I feel like Obi Toppin, especially having a couple years of experience, he's a much more polished offensive player at this point, just a better roller. He's a guy that can even pick and pop a bit, whereas Jarris Walker comes in as a defender. He's great on help side. He switches a lot. They talked about that at summer league practice, how they're probably going to switch just about every screen this week in summer league. So it's about what they want. Do they want more offense on the floor around, you know, Tyrese Halliburton and, and Miles Turner, or do they want an extra defender 
on the court. To me, that is, that's what it's going to come down to when, it, when we talk about who will start between Jairus Walker or Obi Toppin. That's a good point. That's a good point. Something to keep in mind down the line. But the last thing I'll ask is, what is, I don't know if you had a chance to really talk to Rick or really interact with him, but from a teaching standpoint, it seems like he really enjoys that aspect of it. And so how have you seen maybe Jairus Walker embrace some of the teaching that comes along with having a coach who's been around the game for so long and really wants his players to understand the fine points of the game? Yeah, we only got to talk to Rick for a couple of minutes on the first day of practice. But what I will say is, even though we didn't get to talk to him every day, pretty much every day I think I saw him working one-on-one with something with Jarrett Walker. So those two are already, you know, in cahoots, I'd say, as far as trying to figure out what each wants out of each other, what Jarrett wants out of Rick and what Rick wants Jarrett to look like and how he can improve his game. And that's something Rick Carlisle has definitely taken on here in the last couple of years with the Pacers in Dallas, that was kind of his reputation was he didn't like young guys. He didn't really want young guys on those teams because a lot of those teams, whether it was with Dirk or with Luka, they were contending. So he didn't really have the patience to mold those younger players. But now in the Pacers, he realizes, okay, it's a rebuild. We just had back-to-back top 10 picks and he's trying to get what he can out of Jared Walker. And of course, Benedict Matherin still, he wants to, mold those young players into the best they can be. So he's really taking his time, it feels like, to to get with those guys and really work on what they need to improve on to become the best versions of themselves. Zion, last question for me. Right out of the gate, when NBA free agency opened up, the Pacers were big spenders, able to go get swingman Bruce Brown from the Denver Nuggets for two years, $45 million. I know that price tag had some sticker shock around the league to some extent but we also understand that as a smaller market team if there's a player you really want to go grab and feel like can benefit your roster you need to be willing to pay a premium at times as you evaluate both the premium that was paid combined with what Bruce Brown brings to this Pacers roster where do you see it playing out this year I I like the signing because the Pacers had to pay somebody. With the new CBA, you have to hit a minimum salary, and so they had to pay somebody. That Tyrese Halliburton extension doesn't kick in for another year. And while you can say, you know, $22, $23 million a year for Bruce Brown is a lot, he's now the highest-paid player on the Pacers, which means nobody else is making that much money. I think Miles is right around 20 Buddy Hield is in the $17, $18 million a year range. So they had to pay someone. They had the team option on the second year, and Bruce Brown is a guy we've seen – now, multiple years, really, going back to Brooklyn and then, of course, winning the championship this year in Denver, he's a role player that can really give you good things on a quality team. He can guard he can guard probably one through four, I'd say. He can play the two through four. You know, he's gotten a lot better with his jump shot, and, and he's a good screener as well, which the Pacers like to run those guard-to-guard screens. So you look at Bruce Brown, this is a great utility player. They're play, they are paying a, a high tag for him, but – for this team that I think is looking to really be in the playoffs this year, I think that's a, a good payoff for them to see what Bruce Brown can give them, whether that be, you know, off the bench, which I've seen maybe he'll come off the bench. I think he'd probably start at the two or three, but he's somebody you can use in really a lot of different areas to help your team out. Zion, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the Indiana Fever. Obviously, we saw a move yesterday with Queen Egbo getting shipped to the Washington Mystics, but as far as his core, you have Aaliyah Boston, Kelsey Mitchell, both all-stars, how exciting is that for this franchise and how much can we expect them to possibly push for a playoff spot? The Fever this year are, are a team that has lost, they've lost a lot of close games that could hurt them near the end of the year, but like you said, there's a, a lot of excitement around this group right now. The Queen Egbo trade was a bit surprising, but you talk about Aaliyah Boston, I mean an, an immediate impact. I think it's been a surprise to many, but you see her now. She's not getting double and triple teamed as much as she was in college, and you see her really dominating a lot of these games, an all-star starter, and then you also mentioned Kelsey Mitchell, who has been getting buckets for years in Indy, and now for the first time she'll be in the all-star game. But those two are the main pillars for this team that has, has given this group life. They haven't made the playoffs since 2016, the, the last year of Tamika's catching's career. And right now they are, I think, about two, two and a half games out of that eight spot to get into the playoffs. And the offense has been really excellent for the Fever. So I think there's a chance, you know, if they pull everything together, they've had a road-heavy schedule too. 
to begin this year, meaning when they get back at home later in the second half of the season, they're going to have a lot of home games, which should benefit a young team. I think they'll have a chance as we look the last week, week and a half of the season, we'll say, okay, this team is fighting to get back in the playoffs for the first time in seven years. And that's really all you can ask with a first year, you know, your best player is a rookie and then a first year head coach as well. I think that's all you can ask out of a team like this. Well, I'm going to say it right here, right now. I guarantee <laughs> that the fever and the Pacers will make the playoffs. Don't hold me to that. You know, if anybody comes back and throws that in my face, I was hacked. So there's my excuse. But Zion, thanks for coming on, man, and keep up the great work with Andy Starr. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Zion. Again, that's Zion Brown, reporter for the Indianapolis Star, flagship paper here in Indianapolis. That is good music right there. Gets me in the nice mood to dance, enjoy this summertime weather, things of that nature. I'm James Boyd, alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. You're listening to The Fan Midday Show. We're going to pivot away from all of our NBA dialogue where I was ranting and raving about flopping. There is no flopping in the NFL because usually if you fake something, you're getting hit. And so we're going to pivot over to football and I mean, how could we not discuss Anthony Richardson at some point? And who better to talk to than Scott Carter, who covers the Gators floor, FloridaGators.com. Scott, how you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing well. I appreciate you coming on. And I guess we'll start with literally the new face of the franchise here in Indianapolis, the Florida boy who's finally out of, I guess, that Florida heat this time of year. So what was Anthony Richardson like as a person as you got to know him, Scott, throughout his time in Gainesville? Yeah, you know, Anthony right from the get-go uh, was a guy I liked. I remember uh, meeting him even before he played here. I met up with him and his mom for a story uh, over at a local hotel here. And he just comes across as a little bit almost like a man-child. Even back then, he was like only, I guess, 18. But to me, he seemed like he was about 25 and had a good sense of humor. And you could tell he got a lot of that from his mom. And, and then he gets here, and, you know, he suddenly is thrust into the spotlight, you know, none more so than his last couple of years had to wait his turn. But I just always, I tell people like Anthony, I don't know what's going to happen with him in the NFL because he is such an intriguing prospect. I mean, the upside is unbelievable, but there's also the inexperience factor and how it's all going to play out as a player. I don't know, but the person's not going to get in Anthony's way. I mean, he's a guy, he's going to take care of his business off the field. He's going to be a good teammate. And the Colts, I think are going to like him as an ambassador for their franchise as they try to build around him. Scott, you mentioned the level of adversity that Richardson had to go through at Florida and waiting for his opportunity. As you look at him as the player, where were the biggest things as you saw that growth and development and seizing the opportunity in his last season? I know the starts are a knock against him, but with the reps he was able to get and biding his time for that opportunity, where was he at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows of that journey? You know, I, you know, you look back and I think he ended up starting, gosh, thirteen games or twelve at Florida. It's kind of, I can't remember the exact number. It was only, you know, it's less than an NFL season. Let's put it that way. And last year was just kind of a roller coaster watching him at times. I mean, you know, he had some interceptions that you kind of scratched your head on, but then he would make plays and make throws that you know there's one really else in the country who could do and that's Anthony in a nutshell I think what impressed me the most though and I, it was really an emphasis of Billy Napier when he got here I mean you know you look back and it, you know Billy Napier got here in December of 21 so really only worked with Anthony about eight months before they hit the field and Anthony's the first time starter and I think the whole leadership part of it it's it, it gets talked about a lot in sports and it's hard sometimes to tangible proof of that but when you're around someone as raw as Anthony was last year you start to see it emerge and you know I just felt he became more comfortable as a leader uh, as a guy who could command a team and um, and then on the field I mean I I think this really recognition of defenses and seeing things that he'd never seen that you can't really know until you're in those positions and I think that's what so much uh, of Anthony's season was about last year. It's just seeing things for the first time, improving, and you know, of course, Gator fans would love to see how it would have played out 
with him being a starter here for a second year. But now we're going to get to see him in Indianapolis and see how he translates to that level. Yeah, I honestly think when you look at a player and you tell him, hey, you got a chance to go top 10, you got to go. Because, I mean, you never know what the year could bring in college. I do think he would have benefited from staying in college from a play standpoint. But financially and life-wise, it's like if you got a chance, you got to go. But from your perspective, Scott, when you're seeing, and I would assume you saw some of these performances in person, what was it like when you saw him just do something? Like, for example, the 81-yard touchdown run against LSU, you know, a throw against Utah. Like, what is your reaction? Like, is there any moment where you're looking around, like, did anybody else just see what I saw? Because of just how in those flashes he looks like he's not from here, like he's an alien or something. Yeah. No, there was a lot of those moments where you hear the gasp in the crowd and even in the press box, you know, down here at Florida, it's an open press box. So you're you're with the uh, the crowd and you're hearing that, but you could still hear even a gasp here and there of a, a rider or something like, man, whoa, did, did he just do that? You know, that's just kind of what Anthony brings to the table. He's going to do stuff that just no one else can do and few players have ever been able to do. And... Uh, but also being the as young as he is, you saw the other side of that, like with some interceptions or stuff. But one of the, the, the play that really even against Utah last year, you guys have probably seen, but he, it was a bootleg where he was under pressure and he made the spin move. And in the middle of the spin move, he throws a touchdown. And it's like, I've never seen that play before. And I probably won't again unless he pulls it off at the next level. But that's just the answer. And that's why. Again, like we talked about, you know, when you're a chance to be a top 10 pick, regardless of what your experience level is, if somebody's going to take you and pay you and give you an opportunity, you got to go. Yeah, I think the Utah play was one of those, no, 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 yes, because (laughs) I just could not believe. (laughs) I mean, it's not how you draw it up, right? I mean, I guess he could say, yeah, that's, that's what I thought I could do, but it was unbelievable to see that play, obviously. The other thing I want to ask, though, and I'll have to ask him this himself, but considering how athletic he is, how physically gifted he is, I think that there can sometimes be a narrative of like, oh, this just comes easy to him or it's natural. But what did you see from Anthony Richardson as a worker? Because, like you mentioned, he has some of the deficiencies and he isn't there yet. But what did you see from him from just a mindset of I want to be great at this, even with all the stuff I was naturally given maybe from God or whoever else? Yeah. No, I think he always put in the work. I mean, that's one thing down here at Florida. You know, he was a very visible at the off-season workouts and um, always worked hard in practice. And, again, I think Anthony is old enough to realize, or at least mature enough to realize, the opportunity he has. And I, I think we saw that really this whole time at Florida. I just think that, again, it, there was just so many unknowns for him. And I think that's where you saw the roller coaster ride that really was his career at Florida. Um, and I, 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 but there was never any concerns down here about whether or not he was going to put in the work or be a good teammate. And I, it goes back just to really developing as a leader because it's such a position that, you know, you have to be a leader at that quarterback position, whether it's big time college football or obviously the NFL. And I think that's where. He probably had to grow the most just to kind of get this opportunity. And I think there's still growth to be had there. But, you know, just from watching him in a few press conferences and stuff since he's been up in Indianapolis, and you know, you, you can just see even since he left here, he's still kind of evolving. So it's cool to see him still grow up before our eyes in a way. Scott Carter with us. Covers all things Florida Gators for FloridaGators.com. Scott, you mentioned Billy Napier and how – instrumental and important he was to everything that Anthony Richardson was able to do considering it was his first and only year as a full-time starter this will be two straight years now when you look at Napier's first time at a power five job as a head coach was last year and now Shane Steichen's first opportunity as an NFL head coach is this year with Richardson potentially under center what was that relationship like with first-year head coach at a Power Five and first-year quarterback as a starter? How did they play off of one another, and how influential was Billy Napier for the development of Anthony Richardson in Florida? Well, I think he certainly helped him in in those areas that we talked about, you know, just running a team, 
managing the offense the way he envisioned. I mean, Dan, you know, Dan Mullen, who recruited Anthony and brought him to Florida, is a lot different coach than Billy Napier. I think not only in terms of X's and O's, but just personality. I mean, there's they're just told two two totally different guys. But I always saw Napier and uh, and Anthony work well together. I think there was a mutual respect there, and I think you know Billy being in a situation like he was at Florida, it was a team that probably was not as talented, well, certainly was not as talented as most Florida teams have been over the, dec- the last three decades. Uh, but Anthony was the centerpiece of that talent. And I think, you know, they built some things around him. Uh, but they knew also if they lost him, I mean, it was a huge, you know, detriment to any potential success. So I think they they navigated that almost week to week, and that was a big storyline all season last year, you know, how much you're going to let Anthony do this week compared to maybe last week. And But on the surface, it just seemed like they always had a mutual respect, and uh, I do think that they were both learning on the fly too. So it was two guys who were not only getting to know each other, but were in high-pressure situations trying to make the best of it. Scott, you talk about high pressure situations. I've never felt it. You know, I've been, I haven't lived in SEC country. I haven't, didn't grow up, you know, down there. But what is that pressure like when you're the quarterback at a school and you wear the same number as the guy who was the quarterback at the school and Tim Tebow? What is that like? Because we've talked a lot about the pressure Anthony Richardson's going to face here in Indianapolis because the standard is Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck. But down mm-hmm. there, what was that like to be in that bubble, to be the kid from Florida who's expected to and kind of put it on himself to be the next great one and maybe not quite getting to that level simply because he didn't really have enough time to? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, it's a different kind of spotlight in the, in the NFL. Obviously, you're getting paid, and the franchise is uh, you know putting all of its uh, backing behind you. and. Yeah, it was. It's kind of like that here at Florida. I mean, the quarterback is scrutinized at Florida probably as much as any school in the country because of you know the Tim Tebow's and Danny Warfels and Steve Spurrier's and you know it was a uh, Anthony. You know, he was the best prospect at that position since Tim Tebow, and like you said, he wore his same number. And um, I think the the it was kind of a bittersweet to see what's happened with him because. On one hand, you know, the Gator fans who really know the program and the history, they're kind of like, man, what, what did we miss there maybe with Anthony only having him one year as a starter? But on the second, on the other hand, it's like, you, you know, he left here, he did the best he could. It was a tough situation, and now look at this opportunity. So, But I do think the experience here at Florida can only help him with, you know, being a rookie in the NFL, playing quarterback, because he knows – the scrutiny that comes with it. And believe me, at Florida, I mean, it's got the uh, biggest media contingent usually of about any school in the country. I mean, it's nothing unusual to see, you know, 20, 25 reporters that after practice waiting to waiting to talk to players or something. So that's just the life that he experienced here at Florida. Scott, when you look at the areas that he struggled last year, how much of it is – the circumstances of the moment of being asked to, to do so much in a you know a strenuous circumstances with everything that was around him and it being the weight of the role on his shoulders immediately over the course of, of 12 games as a starter last year how much of those struggles are fixable or or will be fixed by growth that would lead him to be what the Colts hope is a, a franchise caliber quarterback over the course of the next 10 15 years I mean, I think they're almost all fixable if he continues to, you know, evolve and just learn learn the game more. I mean, you know, he, he's been around the game now at the high school and college level, but I, I don't think he – I think he's developed a whole new understanding of what, what it really means to play quarterback starting really last year, being that starter. And, uh, you know, he's, I, I don't know if he's turned 21 yet, but I think he's still 20. Just did, just did a couple 21. months ago, yep. yeah. Okay, so, I mean, you know, he's still such a young guy and so much that he just doesn't know. And, um, again, I think it all goes back to just what I know here and what the people who worked with him closely say. I mean, he put in the work. Uh, he, he did it 
also uh, being a college kid, still trying to grow up a little bit. But I do think that the Anthony that I saw in the last 18 months, I mean, he just seemed to really kind of grasp something that maybe he understood, okay, this is this is real. I've got this opportunity. So I think if he continues to improve with all the, the uh, intangibles, he's going to be a good one because we all know that he's got the physical tools. Uh, but again, you have to you have to tie both together, right, to to pull it off at that level. Yeah, I believe the Colts assistant GM Ed Dodds basically said he's a blue chip player without the resume. Like he does all these things, he can do all these things, but he doesn't have the resume or the consistency to back these things up. So it is a gamble, it is a risk. But one thing I want to touch on is how much joy did Anthony Richardson bring to the team? Because again. You would think he's facing so much pressure here, right? And he would come out and he'd be so serious and he would try to say all the right things. But he comes out, I believe last week or the week before, we hadn't talked to him in a while. And he starts off the press conference by saying, I'm just here so I won't get fined. And then breaks out in a huge smile. And we're like, who does this? You know, who even has the guts to do this? So what was it like to see him interact with his teammates, coaching staff, and just have that joy that maybe sometimes people can lose because of the pressure that comes with this game. You know, that's another thing with Anthony. Uh, after games a lot, he would uh, be outside the stadium, win or lose, and he'd be doing all these photos. I remember a lot of times he would do his signature backflip, and they saw him do it one time at a pair of Crocs, and the doc- team doctor was like, Anthony, let's, let's calm that down. Man. <laughs> but that's just, that's just Anthony. I mean, he, he really is kind of like one of those it was a big man child. He's, he's, he reminds you of a kid still, but now he's growing into a man. And I think he always was kind of a, a guy who loved to cut up with his teammates, have fun. He did bring a light air to a lot of things that he did. He would joke around with the media contingent here once in a while. You know, he's kind of a dry humor. Like I saw that replay that you're talking about, but it made me laugh because I see him do that kind of stuff here, but certainly not on that stage. I mean, that went uh, national. So, it's just, I think a lot of his personality is built around that and having fun. And um, I think that's a positive because, I mean, let's face it, man, if you're if you're not having fun at that level and you're under that scrutiny and pressure, man, it, it eats a lot of people up. So it's going to be curious just to see how he does handle that as he, as he matures and goes on into his NFL career. Scott Carter of FloridaGators.com taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Scott, you mentioned that Florida football is no stranger to bright lights and high-level media coverage. And since we have you here, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the, uh, in a statement from the university, upgrades coming, or at least an architectural firm being hired to plan out upgrades for the Swamp and Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. As you look at that venue, as we know it from afar, as one of the more iconic venues in all of college football, as the wheels get moving in motion for an upgrade for the stadium. What can fans expect to be more of the same, and what can fans potentially expect uh, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium to look like in the next couple of years? Well, I know that you know they've been doing studies now for about four or five years, and now, like you said, it's finally to the architecture stage, and then the architecture is going to put together some real proposals. And I mean, I think there's going to be a, a commitment to obviously keeping it some. You know, you got to keep its character. But it does need some renovations. I mean, the biggest thing that you hear about down here in Florida is, you know, it's, it's, it needs maybe some chair backs. And I think that's one of those things that you're probably going to see. The premium area. But I, I hope, I, I just know from what I know internally from their studies, I mean, they've looked at places that have done, has done this right in recent years. Obviously, in baseball, Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, two iconic historical venues that have still kept some of its character, but also modernized. I think that's the mix they're hoping for, trying to find. And it's going to be, from what I know, a two- or three-year process, so it's probably going to be in stages. But uh, it, it will be interesting, you know, even in the short time that the announcement was made. I mean, there's no shortage of opinions out there, guys, on what, <laughs> what they should do and what they can't do. So I'm sure they're paying attention to that, and I'm as curious as anybody else what this is going to look like in the end. But I do hope that it does uh, – remain the swamp as we know it to some degree what's been the biggest point of contention if anything if there's anything you can share with us of an untouchable that, that cannot be altered in any way as they look over these renovations all of it <laughs> yeah i mean i think you know the just the 
it's such a, if you've been here, you know the stands, man, they go really high and they almost, they stay on top of the field. That's why other than here in Death Valley and, and LSU, I mean, those are by far the two loudest stadiums I've ever been to when they're humming. And I think they're one of the, you know, the fans are really concerned that if you, if you do too much with the bleachers or the, the uh, student section and maybe knock some of the old section out and rebuild, is he going to be able to maintain that, that noise factor that makes this place unique? So, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, bullet points as the as the fans are pointing out so i think you just gotta listen and see where where you meet in the middle at but i do also believe it it, it needs some updates i mean it's, a, it's an old structure it's been here since 1930 the foundation of it and uh, it's not the most comfortable place to uh sit for three and a half four hours in a game on uh, you know 95 degree days <laughs> So last one for me, Scott. We're talking about renovations. So when are you going to get your wing? Did you already put in for that? You know, just to make sure that they accommodate you. Yeah, you know, I've, I got my application in, so I'm still waiting to hear back. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what my chances are. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope they are raised after your appearance on our show. But I appreciate you coming on, and I'm sure we'll talk down the line when we get more on what it's like to have Anthony Richardson up here, not in the swamp, but I guess in, in the in the nice, calm, flat lands of Indiana. But we appreciate you for coming on. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. It is Scott Carter covers the Florida Gators for none other than FloridaGators.com. Jimmy Cook and James Boyd here in the DriveHuber.com studios. Eddie Garrison guiding us throughout the afternoon. NBA free agency is in full swing. Pacers were very active through the early going. A lot of angles to cover from how their roster looks now compared to the start of NBA free agency and a lot of clarification we're going to need from our next guest as well with some of the bigger moves around the league. It is Dan Purcell, friend of the show, a part of the sports business classroom out in Las Vegas as well as a former front office executive with the New Orleans Pelicans. Dan, do you have a good fourth? Oh, it was great. Fireworks, barbecue. I mean, does it get any better than that? No, it does not. Plenty of fireworks across the board as well with NBA free agency to keep your time in between uh, plates of hot burger or hot dogs and hamburgers and anything else that you might have been able to <laughs> See, consume it, over it the It might weekend. get better. You know, Tyrese Halliburton had... Quite the weekend, he did. So, <laughs> just a little better. He might have had he might have had the best week of anybody. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think he's eating hamburgers and hot dogs. He could probably buy enough flaming yawn to like. <laughs> yeah, he, he, has, he has enough to, to buy in bulk. Uh, exactly. Pretty much anything that he wants from now it's until the end of time. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, let's start there with the designated rookie extension. How unique is that maneuver for teams? And if you were operating within this Pacers front office, how beneficial? is that as a tool to know that you have a foundational piece locked up for the next five seasons? Well, Jamie, we've talked about this a ton. You know how much I love Tyrese Halliburton. Mm -hmm. You know how much I love him as a player, as a person. I think he, you know, on draft night, I think I was actually texting you a few years back, and we were texting about Tyrese Halliburton, and I was saying, oh, man, you guys are passing on Tyrese Halliburton. And, you know, it's this is – First off, I, I have to give a ton of, of, of credit to uh, Kevin Pritchard and uh, Shad Buchanan. They've really done a really good job of building this team. If, you, if you're looking at their cap sheet or looking at their, their destiny that they control in terms of draft capital, I mean, they've been doing a, a phenomenal job of peace parting and taking risks on things. For, well, I'm sure we'll touch on Obi Toppin, but you know, taking risks on these guys that and they're low risks high-reward type plays. And for Halliburton, it was a no-brainer. He is worth, in my opinion, he's worth every penny in this new CBA. Um, I know it's daunting to a lot of people that maybe, you know, $43 million next, uh, I'm sorry, in 24-25 is like, wow, that's so much money for a player. But in the new economy of the NBA, it's a good number for a really good player. That is so fascinating to hear out loud like yes that's basically a bit of a discount considering that the prices are going to keep going it's monopoly up. money it's monopoly like, money james oh my goodness there's money out. i just got to get a little bit like tyrese holla at your boy but um dan when you look at obviously that was the easiest move i felt like for the pacers this offseason the other ones they didn't have much control over it's kind of you know making calculated uh, uh, guesses with where you're going to go with your team, depending on who's available, who wants, you know, has a mutual interest. But for Bruce Brown in particular, we knew he was going to get a bag, we knew he was going to get paid. 
what does he mean to come over to Indianapolis and, and Indiana with the Pacers and have that championship experience that everyone always talks about, but also what can he bring from just an on-court perspective that maybe they were lacking in years past? Yeah, I think he actually brings a bit of it, – it's, if you remember, let, let's take a step back before we even talk to Bruce, how we got to Bruce Brown, right? Mm-hmm. If, if we remember middle of the season, I think uh, Indiana was, what, uh, nine games over 500, ten games over 500, and then Halliburton got – Hurt, right? Yep. And you saw, and and you went on this losing streak, and it was literal. A it was literally a depth losing streak. I call those depth losing streaks, right? Where you don't have the guys to even just tread water. You know, you want to go four and six without your best player, or five and five, or even three and seven, right? And they didn't have that that depth that they're able to tread water until he comes back and then get back on track. And that, I think, really set an alarm off. I think uh, Kevin Pritchard also talked about it um, at the end of the year. And it it was something that they really wanted to address. And what Bruce Brown proved was that not only is he durable, but he's tough. He will He doesn't take away from anything that goes on the floor, and he actually adds a little bit. So we'll see exactly how he fits in, but I'll tell you what. Having your two best players being, in my opinion, you know, Halliburton and Matherin, it is a great insurance policy, especially with Halliburton. He does get dinged up at times to have a guy that can step in, understands how to win, understands how to play, doesn't muck, muck the thing up, and you can shred water at least. That's at worst with somebody like that. The sticker shock is inevitable amongst fans, particularly when you look at what was being asked of Bruce Brown as the maybe fourth, fifth, or sixth best option on the championship team last year versus what's going to be asked of him this year. But, Dan, you've been in these front office meetings before. With where the Pacers are at as a franchise, if they give a a market value or a right-at-market value price that four or five other teams were offering to him, that's not enough to close the deal on a player of his window, correct? No, not at all. They had to overpay to get someone to get that depth, especially at the guard position. I mean, I think we will see three-guard three, three guard lineups with these guys in there. I, I actually don't hate the deal. I know, again, it's sticker shock, like you said, right? It's this new CBA. It's this new economy in the NBA. And guys like Bruce Brown would probably make 12 to $14 million in the last CBA, right? But in this one, he's making, obviously, you know, a lot more than that. And I actually like the deal because you're not tied up for a very long time with him. And they gave him a lot of money up front in one year, and he's kind of betting on himself again. And it's a good deal, honestly, for both teams in the sense of, yes, oh, oh my, we're spending $22.5 million on Bruce Brown next year. But it's not so much that you have to spend all of it the next year either if things go awry. So I think it's actually a really good deal for both parties. Bruce Brown gets his payday, although albeit short term. He can still bet on himself, and the Pacers aren't giving themselves four years of a guy who hasn't proven yet that he's a four-year long-term contract type of guy. You touched on it there, but James had brought this up a little earlier in the show that that club option is very critical in terms of the flexibility the Pacers have. What does that do in terms of making this both a, I don't want to call it an audition for Bruce Brown because he just won a championship, but like you mentioned, it doesn't handcuff them. And if things were to really go south, they don't have to pick up that club option next year for $23 million if they don't want to. Right, and that's and it's the beautiful thing about this. They, he, the, the trade-off in this was, hey, we're going to give you a, a bag. That's what he got. He got a bag. But we're not going to also commit to so many years from you. You either take this or you're going to get a much less payday over three, four years. Most likely it would have been four years. Um, so it, it's the uh, that team option in there is going to be huge for them, especially – as we move forward, let's just say Obi Toppin does work out. He's up for extension. And say Obi Toppin is now a guy that you want to push forward with. Or maybe it's the Buddy Heald. Uh, you know, maybe there's something with Buddy Heald if he plays out this whole year and he resigns. Although I don't see that happening. But it just gives you flexibility all over. And as a small market team, the greatest strength you can have in your team from a cap perspective is flexibility and options. You never want to be only one direction and really with any team now in the new cba and the new economy you never want to be that team that only has one option and it's this is the only way we win and if anything goes awry the whole house of cards falls over you know what that sounds like portland right now (laughs) 
seriously. Uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, if we were if we were talking the Trailblazers right now, there's a lot of question marks <laughs> going forward with them. I was uh, the Jeremy Grant. If we're going to touch on them, the Jeremy Grant yeah. contract was. Um, I when I saw it, I I appreciate that they're loyal, and I appreciate that. And I'm happy for Jeremy Grant, obviously. I'm very happy for him. And, you know, taking that payday for a guy who, I mean, he's he's getting paid up there with the top 50 players in the league now. So, you know, for him, there's a lot to prove. And I'm happy for him from a personal standpoint. But from a basketball standpoint and a cap standpoint, when they signed that, I knew right away this was the end of the Damian Lillard, um, you know, era. Because there's zero chance that you're going to – Find that, keep Dame, and be able to add other pieces. So you think that was that was another question we're going to ask you at some point? Is that that was not a oh they got Jeremy Grant and they're hoping that they're going to get Damian Lillard to stay? That is a move that is done with the aspect of we want to build around Grant or we want Grant here because on face value, Dan and I know you and I talked about this a little bit last week off the air, but to me the idea that if you're in a front office and you gave that amount of money to Jeremy Grant, and then hours later, the Dame wants a trade leaked out, I, I would be having, you know, I don't want to say a heart attack, but my heart rate would be in places that it shouldn't be. You're saying from that standpoint with Portland, they knew what they were doing with this extension for Grant. For me, I knew what they were going to do the moment they drafted Scoot at three on draft night. In my what I had already had an inkling with just having experience in these types of situations where superstars, you know, demand trades and whatnot. Um, I knew once Scoot was drafted, he plays the same exact position. He's a very he needs the ball to be successful. There's a lot of things with Scoot that don't mesh with the way Dame plays, right? And obviously you want the ball in Damian Lillard's hands. He's one of the best players ever. So when they drafted Scoot, that was my first sign. I went, okay, he's out of here. And then when that Grant contract came back, I went, okay, this is done. This is not happening anymore. And, you know, because you draft Scoot to protect you from a Damian Lillard trade out, right? You still have a guy who arguably could be a, a really big, big player and a big superstar in this league. You don't draft him and keep him if you think Dame is staying, if that makes any sense. Like that, especially – drafting the same guy at the same position with the same type of ball needs, like having the ball in his hands and being the guy that creates, being the guy that finishes, those types of things. So, Dan, to pivot the conversation back towards the Pacers and obviously less highly paid players, I don't think anybody's making that kind of money on the team this year at least coming up, Obi Toppin, someone who – Indianapolis, Indiana, the Pacers, they know well because he did a through-the-legs dunk in-game against them. And I will never forget it because I was thinking, wow, that is something you see in high school or like during an All-Star game. But aside from his athleticism, from a basketball standpoint and just from a general standpoint and more of, a, a, I guess, a, a holistic view, what could he mean to this team? And how do you feel about giving up two future second-round picks to acquire him? I love it. I love taking – I personally love taking risks on former first-rounders that kind of got lost in rotation. We have to remember that it's hard to play for Tibbs. It's a hard thing. And not to say it's impossible or anything like that, obviously, but Tibbs has a very certain way that he plays basketball, and he doesn't change that. And then as the rotations get tighter, guys on the fringe or younger guys usually start getting pushed out, right? And my thing with Obi is that he needs time to make mistakes. That's how I've always kind of viewed him is he's a guy when he was in college, he got better with, as time went on because he was able to work through mistakes. And I still think the talent is there. I think he's actually a great fit with this team and he's going to get minutes. And I think, I think coach Carlisle is the right type of guy for him. Now that he's a young veteran, coach Carlisle is going to be able to use him in a way that I think really brings out his skill set. And then obviously with the guard play here, I, I actually think this is one of the best fits for him um, that he could have gone to. And I, 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 for two seconds, absolutely. You take the shot here because if it works out, you got a guy that you have control of for the next, you know, if you get him on the extension for, we'll call it between 22 and 25, we'll call it coming out. I think that's a pretty good deal considering that Miles Turner is up in 24-25 at $20 million. So it could be a good trade-off there. Kind of a two-part aspect with Obi Toppin. Dan Purcell joins us, former NBA front office executive and director of scouting with the Sports Business Classroom. First with Toppin, 
why why did he not succeed with Tom Thibodeau, but he would succeed with Rick Carlisle? Because I agree with you, Tibbs is a very unique animal in terms of what he demands of his players, and it's very easy to fall out of rotation there. I would argue maybe not as aggressively so, particularly on the defensive end. Rick Carlisle wants the same, if not more, in terms of effort on both ends of the floor. So, so why can he work with Carlisle versus why he wasn't able to work consistently with Tom Thibodeau? And then with the power forward slot basically being open for competition between either him or Jairus Walker, what are the pros and cons to, to top and earning a starting spot in this rotation if he's able to do so by the time we get to the fall? If he is starting by the beginning of the year, that means he's rebounding and defending and being a guy you can rely on from the help side defensively, meaning he can 2-9 on the block, you know, time the 2-9 really well, which I think he has all this stuff. I think he just didn't work with Tibbs. I don't think he fits into the way that Tibbs plays basketball, and that's okay. There's, it's, not, it's not a knock on Tibbs, and it's not a knock on, um, on Obi. It's, I, I, sometimes those things just don't mesh. Sure. The thing about Rick is Rick, even although he has a certain style that he plays, he does give guys room to grow, right? And he gives guys the ability to make mistakes just as long as you don't make them for 10 games in a row, right? If you're making the same mistake for 10 games in a row, he's probably going to say, all right, man, well, I think it's time that we move forward maybe with something else. And I think that just having a, a new role, having confidence, now that he, you know, Tibbs kind of killed his confidence in terms of not being able to play situationally, I think that he's going to get a shot here, and I think it's his job to, to uh, take advantage of it. Dan, are the Pacers a playoff team next season? Yes. Are they a playoff four to six team next season? No. Ah, it's a little drama. I like it. I mean, hey, <laughs> from a revenue perspective, I'm sure. Herb Simon would not be opposed to having a couple more home games for yeah. <laughs> the Pacers and the playing tournament. Jimmy's shaking his head. Because that's the top of my mind. He does not want the anxiety, Dan. <laughs> but on a different side, why do you think – because it hasn't been completed yet. Maybe there's another team that will get involved. But the Chris Duarte to Sacramento pipeline seems to be forming – why do you think it didn't work out here, and what could he do over there? Obviously, they've extended uh, Demontis Sabonis, who seems to be having um, sort of a, a career revitalization out there with the Kings. I think it was just a glut of guards. I think that's really I, – I, I wasn't yeah. that high on him coming out of the draft either. Um, I thought it was – I thought when they chose him that it was more of like, hey, if he hits, great. If he doesn't, well, eh, you know, it is what it is. And then obviously with Ben Matherin uh, being selected, they got a high pick, you know, last year. It, it was kind of writing on the wall for me. It was like, can he fit? I don't think he does. And that's okay. I mean, this, it's, not a, it's nothing, you know, that he may find a different role with a different team that works for him. But, um, you know, maybe being back on the West Coast is going to be good for him or, or whatnot. But I just don't think he just – because at the end of the day, at the end of the day um, – Everything matters about Halliburton and Matherin and their their direction, and that's all that matters. And in in this case, Duarte kind of bumped into that projection and that role that these guys were more or less, you know, they need the minutes. Yeah, I agree. I think the unique thing about it from when I was covering the team was it felt like he's the type of player I feel like a team that is very good would, would select in the draft because you need a player who could just immediately contribute to a team and you're on a different timeline. Like, he feels like a player you can just plug in and he doesn't, like, raise your ceiling, but he's a good floor player. Like, you can put him in for some minutes and he can get you some buckets and help you win, but the, obviously the Pacers are going in a new direction, so I agree with you on all those points. Yeah, and I think, I think the big thing, it's not that he's not an NBA player. I don't think it's that. I think it's just at the end of the day, the timeline's what's more important to this team, finding a place for Duarte to fit in, or is it to get the most out of Halliburton and Matthew? Agreed. Dan, take me through the 
in the in a world where we have in the NBA players have the most power and usually they're able to dictate things and it confuses the average fan on well this player signed a contract and they don't have a no trade clause in this particular instance so why should team A trade said player to any team they want to go to oh. of course I'm talking about Damian Lillard here <laughs> uh, make sense of this for me and for our listeners of why Miami is a legitimate landing spot for him why you think it might potentially take three teams to get it done and if you don't think Miami makes sense from Portland's standpoint, where does he end up when the dust settles on this? Oh, that's a lot of folded questions in there. Um, there is, there is, there, they, they, that, so, that is the story. He's trying to set you up, Lillard. Dan. He's trying to set you up. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I just, I, I'm good for that. So <laughs> let's let's start with the the base of it. Right? Is with I, I have personal experience with a superstar asking out. Right? I mean that's. Just kind of how it goes if you're not winning championships or you haven't been able to build a super team, anything like that, if you're not having postseason success. From a from a player's standpoint, you know, he's kind of looking at it like I'm getting up there. I'm thir- I believe he's 32 now. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he's to the point right now in his career where, hey, I need to win now. So I need to figure out a way. I need to figure out a way to – get to where I think is the best place for me. And he thinks that's Miami, which is great. That's that's fine if that's where he wants to go. From a team perspective, you have to be able to get value, but you also have to remember you're playing the long game. You're probably going to get a player that you're going to deem as your franchise player again, and you want that that goodwill to move forward, right? So you want that next guy to work with you as well, because what if you have to move on from him? So there's a little bit of, you know, gaming in there of, hey, this is respectful and this is respectful and we're trying to keep it to a, to a point of respect. So you have that first thing. But then the third team in this trade, as I keep going down the list here, like the third team is the Tyler Hero thing is the big sticking point, right? Or the excess money that Miami has to take on. I've heard Ben Simmons out there. I've heard, you know, how Brooklyn can get this done. But the third team is going to have to take Tyler Hero from a cap standpoint. Um, and there's just a bunch of different ways to do it. The biggest issue with this whole trade, and I think why it hasn't been done yet, is because Miami doesn't really have a ton of assets to give away that are of value. And they don't have picks. I mean, they have, like, I think it's 20s off the top of my head. I think it's 26, 28, 30. I think they – or there's a swap maybe on 26. I don't have it right in front of me. But – those picks aren't really going to be enough to get the deal done for Portland. You have to remember that Portland still controls the destiny of this. It's not like Brad Beal where he had a, you know, a, a no-trade clause pretty much into his contract. So I think it'll take a while to build out, especially when you have to deal with teams like Philly who aren't really in a rush to do anything because they have things with Harden. And is Brooklyn really wanting to give things to take on? You know, do you have enough to give to Brooklyn? So there's a there's just a lot of different moving parts on this. Well, let's just have some fun with it, I guess, and go hypothetical. If he goes to Miami and their big three is my, you know, Damian Lillard, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, is that enough to get over the hump and get their first championship since LeBron left? Like the the thing that I've said to Jimmy is I don't know, and it's not a knock on Damian Lillard, I don't know if he can be the best player on a championship team. I just don't know if he can be that. Can Jimmy Butler be that? Can Bam be that? Because it feels like that's a small percentage of the league, and we only see the only small guard we've seen in this era, obviously, Dan, who's been the best player on a championship team is Steph Curry, who is none other than the greatest shooter ever. <laughs> so... Would they be? Would they have a legit shot at it, or would it be something where it's just like, oh, you get, you get, you you have a chance to be back in the playoffs again? See, and that's you say Steph Curry, and who's been the second best, and it's been Damian Lillard yeah. at the end of the day. You know, it's, he's, yeah. he's been the second best little guard, you know, smaller guard. I shouldn't say little because he's not little, but <laughs> you know, compared to compared to the normal person, sure. he's huge. But but in terms of the NBA, a smaller guard. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think Miami has enough. It has to be this year, though. Like, it'll have to be this year. Possibly they have a two-year window. I do think they have enough. I mean, the fact that they took down Milwaukee, I mean, with ease. I understand Giannis was hurt. I, I get all that. But they took that team who had championship aspirations, they took it down with ease. And 
when I saw that, I was like, oh, no, what's going on? And the fact that that team can play like that, and then on top of it, you have Damian Lillard now, I think that is 100% a, a – they can win this thing with him. I, I don't see how – honestly, I, what other teams are really coming up right now that can beat them at full strength? Yeah. You're looking Milwaukee, Denver, and who else? Boston is still there, but I just don't trust them because they don't play smart. Miami plays smart. <laughs> I'm like, Miami plays smart. That's the other thing that also is enticing to me. Now, again, it's all hypothetical. We don't know if he'll end up there. But if he does, I'm like, man, something tells me Eric Spolstra will be able to just – because he does it with every team every year. He gets the most out of whatever his roster is made up of. And if you give him that that last piece, I think that um, it can be very interesting in the East because we've seen – Philly take a step back. Boston will be there. Milwaukee will be there. But um, Dame in Miami, wow, that would be uh, quite the uh, look for sure. For sure. How about you, Jimmy? What you got? What what do you think happens with James Harden, Dan? Uh, That is the million-dollar question right now. I honestly think that's a lot of what's holding this whole Damian Lillard trade up and kind of that facilitating team, right? Because we've heard Clippers, Clippers, Clippers. That's been uh, on the inside from people I've been talking to. It, it just seems like the most logical destination. But we have to for, we're forgetting who we're dealing with in Philadelphia, and that's Daryl Morey. And I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head last time Daryl Morey just salary dumped a player, <laughs> regardless of whether they demanded in or out, and then on top of it did it for pennies on the dollar. I can't remember a time in my experience with Daryl that uh, that's ever happened. So Daryl, and you know, Daryl isn't forced to move. There's not a move. He doesn't have to do this. And he's a pretty shrewd guy. He, he's very smart and he's very patient. And I don't think that it's just all done to the Clippers. It's not going to get done until it has to get done. Dan, we look at the free agent pickups for the Suns. Are you surprised they were able to sort of retool their roster around three guys who are getting max dollars and I, my actually four, I believe, with Aiden there? So, I mean, I was kind of shocked to see them get players I would think still have enough left in the tank, um, some of the older guys and obviously some young guys, to help them contend for a championship. Yeah, I mean – what they did, I mean, I, I saw once they signed uh, the first two minimum guys, right? Because that's really all they can. That's all they can really mm-hmm. sign. Um, and they let Jake Landale, Landale, uh, again, last name, but you know, he, they let uh, him go. It was I could tell right away their strategy was we need to get the minimum guys, the best, the best minimum guys, right now. And if you saw how quickly they came to an agreement with everybody. Um, I think that was indicative of their whole plan was we do have four max guys, so we got to make sure that we get the four, our four or five minimum targets, like the guys who are on minimum salaries, day one. And you notice they signed them all day one. And when you're in that position where you really don't have anything left, because they don't have anything left, there's no room, um, the exceptions, they're on the apron, um, you know, they're at the second apron. There's just not a lot you can do in this new CBA. So, you know, when they signed, they they got obviously they re-signed. You know, they have Damian Lee. They got Utah what's it, Watatanabe. I don't know how to say it last Watanabe, name. Watanabe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. But you got you, you got they got Metu Bates Chop. Uh, I think it was Drew Eubanks. Too. Yep. They all got guys who are Eric Gordon wings. Yeah, they got Eric Gordon as well. Like on that, and you know, Eric came. Eric's a little different because at the at when you're competing, when you have those guys and you want to win a championship, and I know Eric well enough to know that he is a guy who wants to play, win a championship. Um, you do that at year fifteen. I think mm-hmm. he's in year fifteen now. Yeah. So when they went and got that, and then obviously you know they still have Wainwright and uh, Goodwin that they can still work, but you know they got guys who are all vets. All these guys, I think Metu Jop. Bates, Jop, Eubanks, um, Utah, uh, all have five years of service, I think it is, in the NBA. Is it might be four, but it's four or five years of service, so they're young vets who understand how to play. And I think that was key for them. And they didn't have, they didn't waste any time. Their, their plan going into free agency was, we're going to get the best minimum guys for our team, and we're going to sign them day one. 
Dan, we'll get you out of here on this as you look at what has happened so far in free agency. And I know a lot of the trades we talked about, like James Harden potentially and Damian Lillard potentially, still have to get done before we give out official grades. But for the early goings of all this, who's the biggest winner to this point and who's made some moves that have really made you scratch your head and reevaluate where that franchise's priorities are? So... I, I with this, I'll be honest with you. With the Obi Toppin trade, I thought I thought Indiana had a gr- really good offseason. You locked up your franchise player. I mean, you locked him up for five more, four more years. So you got him for five at least. And then on top of it, their draft was really good. I love Jarris Walker. You know this. I'm a big Jarris mm-hmm. Walker fan. And then on top of it, you take a, a shot on on uh, Obi Toppin, who's you know former top ten pick for nothing. You're, it's a rental, but it's a good rental, right? And you still have, you know, you still have some things you can work on there. I think the Lakers. I'll be honest. I think the Lakers might have had the best offseason of anybody. Um, they got guys like Torian Prince, and you know, they signed Gabe Vincent. They got to re-sign Austin Reeves uh, at a way lower number than what you know the market um, before uh, free agency was talking about. Um, I thought their draft was really good uh, with Hood Shafino. Mm-hmm. Um, they still have Max Christie coming back. I mean, you have Cam Reddish they signed, then they signed Jackson Hayes as well. Um, I think, and then, of course, re-signing D'Angelo Russell, even though I'm not, I, I think that was the one one sticking point for me, but I get it because I don't think there was anybody else in the marketplace that could give you his production. Sure. So so I think the Lakers, from as of today, well, you know, as of today, I think the Lakers had a great um, offseason. Obviously, re-signing Rui was big as well. I think the Lakers really had the best offseason of anybody so far. In terms of flopping, it, to me, it's Portland. Um, I, the Jeremy Grant thing is—it's. I'm not saying he may not be worth it, but I just—I know if it was me, that I'd be a hard pass on that. Giving that much money to one player that isn't a top 25, top 30 player in the league, it's going to be hard for me to give that money out, and and that's that's going to be a big sticking point now. Portland moving forward because it's going to turn into at years three and four with Russell Westbrook. Uh, if you look back at like Russell Westbrook, those contracts like that, those guys moved team to team to team to team because they were really just fodder, right? They were just we have we make way too much money and teams are trying to clear the money. So it's going to be an albatross moving forward. Always insightful. Dan Purcell, nice to take some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Dan, enjoy Summer League. Enjoy Las Vegas. Best of luck with the sports business classroom once again, and I have no doubt we'll be chatting you up here in a couple weeks as Summer League comes to a conclusion. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me as always. You can follow him on Twitter at DanP underscore NBA, former front office member with the New Orleans Pelicans, a director of scouting over there at Sports Business Classroom.